studying the book of Romans together, coming to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. If you are with us this morning and you're without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just wave to them, and they'll put a Bible into your hand, and it'll be marked to our passage that we're studying today for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that one uh, a gift from us to you today. God wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writing by the Spirit of God, Therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. And therefore, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, that is, Jesus, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came through many offenses resulted in, uh, many offenses, uh, resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Let's pray together. Father, thank you, as we always do, for the uh, unspeakable privilege of being able to turn to your word and to study your word, and to do it as an act of worship toward you, to do it in fellowship and communion with you and your Holy, Spir your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we think about Psalm 73, and Asaph comes in living through life, and he said his feet almost stumbled as he saw uh, the prosperity of the wicked, and so much in life left him confused. And then he said he came into your house, and then he saw their end. He, he regained eternal perspective in a temporal context of this life, and we pray that you would use your word to accomplish that very thing in each of our lives today, where our lives, our hearts, our mind, our soul, our strength are dominated by the temporal today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see all of these things that are, are in our lives in the light of eternity and the light of 
uh, truth and in the light of uh, a heavenly perspective. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage of Scripture is uh, a highly technical one, actually, um, but we'll, we'll try to keep it simple uh, this morning and, and look at um, the, you know, the, the mountaintop uh, side of, of all of it. You can get bogged down in, in the majesty of it, really. But the passage, this passage of Scripture provides us with tremendous insights into a couple of things. Number one, the tremendous devastation that was brought into human history, into the human condition, uh, in fact, into each and every one of our lives individually as a result of the fall, the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Many years ago, I heard someone, I can't remember who now, refer to Adam's sin or his fall as the Adam bomb. It is actually a very clever uh, uh, title to put upon his fall. You might think it's too clever by half, but it really isn't. And I, if I remember the sermon uh, correctly, it, it, the, the essence of it was that uh, Adam had an opportunity to uh, do something great in the Garden of Eden and in a relationship with God, and he sinned. And thus, uh, he bombed in his opportunity in much the same way that I suppose uh, an opera singer could bomb in trying to sing an opera. Uh, but actually, it, it, it goes way beyond in terms of talking about the atom bomb. Uh, that is a, almost a prim preliminary understanding of the atom bomb. When I think about an atom bomb, I always think about the immense destruction that is left behind as a result of, of that weapon. And it wasn't just that Adam bombed in his own opportunity in uh, the Garden of Eden. The far greater uh, devastation that has occurred is what his uh, failure and what his bombing or his sin or his falling uh, brought into human history and brought into each and every one of our uh, lives, the devastation and the literal carnage that is uh, uh, listed for us within this passage so graphically, the aftermath of, of his fall. The second thing that this passage gives us tremendous insight into is God's provision, on the other hand, uh, through Jesus Christ of uh, a multifaceted grace that simply overwhelms the absolute mess that Adam has introduced into, uh, created for all of us, and, and created in each of us. First, we'll take, the, uh, take note of the effect of the fall of Adam and Eve upon us, and who and what each of us are as descendants of Adam and Eve in this room this morning. What we are in Adam, as it's described in verses 12 through 14, and then in contrast, we'll examine all that can be ours uh, if we will trust in Jesus for salvation, moving from being in Adam as our uh, supreme identification in life to then being, uh, to moving to in Christ as our new and our primary identity when we become a Christian. 
what we are in Adam, what we are as his descendants, the list of it is described beginning in verse 12. Adam introduced sin into the world uh, through his disobedience to God's lone prohibition given to him uh, in the Garden of Eden. You might remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, I'll read it to you. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It was the lone prohibition given to Adam and to Eve. And then uh, the uh, violation of of that lone commandment by Adam is given to us in uh, Genesis chapter 3. And so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And so here you have Adam and Eve created perfect, created in the image of God, and they're placed in a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden. They're given one prohibition, not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then we have Adam's transgression. He ate of the forbidden fruit, and then the sin that uh, uh, infected the entire world as a result of it. Now, uh, Paul further tells us in verse 12 that, and completely consistent with the Genesis account, that as a result of Adam's sin, death entered into human history, not just sin, but death entered into human history and the human condition as well, as he declares there, and death through sin. The Genesis account in Genesis chapter 3, the sin of Adam and Eve, it resulted in death exactly as God had warned Adam would be the case. Uh, the, uh, the first death that they experienced immediately was spiritual death, separation from God, uh, instantly on the day that they sinned, and then physically, uh, physical death followed as a, as a consequence as well. It's interesting that as you follow the progression in Genesis and you go into Genesis chapter 5, we begin now then to read and to learn of the effects of Adam's sin in this regard and, and to learn of it in earnest, where originally here created in uh, the image of God, but in uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, it says, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called him Seth. And so first of all, we're told that as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, we, uh, from Seth on, we as Adam's descendants, we no longer bear the image and the likeness of God supremely, but now we're born into this world as human beings bearing supremely the image and likeness of Adam. We'll come back to that in a moment. The second great consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve is physical death. Eight times in the genealogy of Adam as it's recorded there in Genesis chapter 5, the phrase is repeated, and he died, and he died, speaking of Adam's descendants, and he died, and he died, and he uh, died. And that phrase is repeated over and over again by the Holy Spirit, uh, driving home the point 
that Adam's uh, sin against God not only introduced spiritual death into the human condition, but also physical death as well. This passage in Romans, among others, provides us with, I think, a very, very important explanation concerning the origin of death and the universality of death uh, among mankind. It reveals that death uh, reveals each of us to be physical descendants of Adam. Uh, Death links each of us to his sin in that ancient garden of Eden. Someone might be tempted to protest uh, at a declaration like that and say, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I think it's typology at best. Uh, I think it is mythology at worst. And how in the world can I know, actually know, that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? What proof is there that I am a literal, physical descendant of Adam and Eve as the Bible teaches? And God's answer to those questions, and, and those are great questions. Every human being in existence ought to ask them some, at some point in their life. And God answers the question in a word with the word death. It is death that reveals each and every one of us to be a descendant of that ancient Adam and Eve. It is because we die. God doesn't go into some long explanation of it, uh, taking up 400 pages in some book or giving us pie charts or something like this. He says it in four words in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. Death reveals each of us to be a descendant of that ancient Adam. It ties us to that ancient garden of Eden. Someone might uh, think of themselves, and I think our culture increasingly uh, thinks this way, I'm free. Uh, I don't need God. I don't need religion. I don't need any of it. I'm a free person, uh, independent of all of it. But the Bible teaches that you're not free, that you are already chained to death, and in and of yourself, irretrievably chained to death. I think it's very important that every person ask themselves at some point in our lives questions like, why do we die? Why is there this thing called death? Why does death exist at all? What is the origin of this great curse called death in the human condition? I think that we're so used to the reality of it, so used to death's long, uninterrupted march through human history, that we rarely take the time to just stop and think deeply about it and to give any consideration at all to its origin. Yes, it exists, but why does it exist? And I would contend that there's no greater explanation than the one given to us in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the record of the creation of man, the fall of man from that original creation, including the introduction of death into human history. 
And I'll tell you, I am very, very thankful for this revelation from the Word of God, that I don't have to go through however long my life might be, the three score and ten, and live in complete ignorance related to the origin uh, of death at all. I'm thankful that the God of the Bible isn't afraid to pose the great questions of life and then supply answers to them. Now, uh, notice also in, in verse 12, and then he speaks of it at length in verse 19, that Adam's sin also resulted in the fact that each of us as descendants of his are born sinners. Every single human being since Adam and Eve, every one of us in this room, we were born into the world, Paul tells us here, with a sin nature. And this passage... Uh, not only explains the universality of death in the human condition, but also the universality of sin. Why it is that each and every one of us and every single human being in human history are born sinners. Why we sin by nature. Why we sin naturally. And this passage reveals that supremely we are not sinners because we sin. Now, the, the problem is much deeper than that, but it teaches that rather that we sin because we are sinners, and that from Adam we are born with a sin nature, uh, a nature that is already conversant with sin, a nature that has already fallen and the proof of being born with this sin nature, this fallen nature, the proof of it is all around us. It's not only all around us every single day, it, 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 the proof is deeply and powerfully within each and every one of us. The proof of it certainly is evident to any parent. You might have noticed that no parent ever needs to teach a child how to sin. No parent ever teaches their child how to throw a fit at the absolute worst time in a restaurant or in a store. Now, honey, here's what you need to do. What I want you to do is when we're in line uh, ready to pay for what we're ready to pay for here, I want you to, as I'm holding you in my arms, I want you to arch your back and begin to hit me in the chest and then begin to kick with your legs. And, and I want you to scream as loud as you can until your face is beat red and veins are coming out of, out of your forehead. And, uh, and, and so I know it's going to take a little practice for you, and so we'll work on that before we go to the store. And, uh, and, and then, you know, in the midst of the fit, I want you to push me away uh, like I'm some stranger, like you don't even uh, 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 know me. Now, every parent will tell you that they never have to spend any time teaching their children to sin, but instead... They spend all of their time teaching children not to sin, and there's a reason for that. And it isn't just babies, and it isn't just small children. Look, as it results, it has to do with the adult population of the world. Look at the sheer amount of time and money and effort that is invested by just our culture alone trying to teach people and instruct people in doing the right thing. There aren't any classes that are, are needed to teach a person how to lie or how to steal or how to swear because no one needs to be taught this. 
We are born with this ability. We are born with a natural inclination toward these things. Now, all of the classes and all of the laws and all of the moral education in life in this country are designed to teach us uh, and to tell us to tell the truth and not to steal and to be honest and so forth. And it is because sin comes naturally to us and it exposes and reveals us again to be a descendant of Adam and Eve. And like death, we, are, we just get used to other people and ourselves being sinners. And we never stop and ask the question, how come we are like this? Why are we so upside down? Why must we be taught to do what is right? Why does sin come so naturally to us? And the answer to th these questions is found, again, in the Bible's account of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, Paul gives us a, an interesting revelation consider, regarding what exposed us as sinners between the time, uh, the considerable time, between the time between Adam uh, as a historical figure and Moses, and then God's giving uh, uh, the law of Moses to Moses, God giving his commandments to Moses. Paul talks about this in verses 13 and 14. Uh, have you ever wondered, well, I understand that Adam was a sinner based upon his disobedience to God's commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I understand that the law of Moses exposes us as sinners and guilty in the eyes of God. But how was man made aware of his guilt before God during the estimated 2,500 years between the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Moses receiving the, uh, the law of Moses? And maybe you've wondered that. Maybe you haven't. But Paul wondered that. Isn't the Bible wonderful in what it, it makes us think about in life that we would never otherwise think about, but need to think about? And Paul wondered about it, and here's the answer to it. And his answer to it is the existence of death. Every single human being sinned during those 2,500 years, but sin was not, uh, transgressions were not uh, imputed to them during that 2,500 years because transgression speaks of sin that is committed against a known law. Uh, Adam sinned against a direct commandment of God. After Moses, people would sin directly against the law of God given to Moses. But in that period of 2,500 years, men and women continued to sin, but it wasn't imputed to them because there was no law of Moses, no willful violation uh, of, uh, of a known law. But Paul tells us that the existence and the reign of death during those 2,500 years communicated to mankind that something had gone terribly wrong in human history and that we were fallen and sinners in the eyes of God and guilty before God. Death communicated that mankind and the world was broken, even without it being exposed by the law of Moses. Now notice too in verse 18, 
as we uh, consider the devastation of the atom bomb, that Adam's sin also brought judgment and condemnation upon all of us. Not only did it introduce physical death into human history, but spiritual death as well. It brought judgment and condemnation. As a result of his sin, and because we are physical descendants of Adam and Eve, we are born into the world spiritually dead. We are born into the world separated from God, separated from the very relationship that we have been created for. And here as Paul lays out the devastation of the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he's driving home the point that one man brought all of this upon each of us. And Paul tells us all of this, not so much that we will then be furious with Adam and then one day hunt him down in heaven and punch him in the nose, but rather so that to simply make a a, a powerful uh, point uh, 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 that all of this is intended to encourage us, to each of us, to put our trust in Jesus for salvation. And the point that Paul is making is that if one man could bring such devastation to mankind, could produce such an awful uh, destiny of sin and death to all of us who are identified with him, then one man can also, namely Jesus, also bring righteousness and salvation to all who choose to be identified with him. That is, if one man, Adam's transgression, can plunge the entire world into sin, then one man, that is Jesus' obedience and death upon the cross, makes it possible to be saved. Notice in verse uh, 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made uh, righteous. And this is why the word one is used 12 times in these few short verses. It is in order to drive home this point. One brought disaster, and then one can also bring salvation. Now again, don't get furious uh, with Adam. Instead, Paul's talking to us about Adam here so that number one, we will recognize our identification with him. Uh, as one of his descendants on the basis of both sin and death. And you might sit here this morning and say, yes, I see it. I've never given consideration to death and to sin, my sin nature, why I am the way that I am, why people are the way that they are, why people die universally as, as they do, and now I see it. It ties each of us back to Adam. But don't stop there. It's important then, as Paul is making the case here, to then move on to put your faith in Jesus and to now identify with him, become a part of his kingdom, and you will then gain much more in Jesus. Astonishingly, you will gain much more in Jesus than you and I have ever lost in Adam. And that's why you see that great word in verse 15 as it begins the section that talks about uh, Jesus here, and it begins with the word but. 
And what we are in Christ, Paul declares here in verses 16 through 21, is, is what we are in Christ and what becomes ours when we trust in Him for salvation. And in this section in Romans, <clears throat> excuse me, you have the repeated phrase, much more. Uh, it occurs here because Paul describes how it is that at, uh, Jesus provides us with a salvation, excuse me, it's a, I just seem to have allergies 365 days a year, so it's just the way it is. But this phrase, much more, is repeated over and over and over again uh, in the passage. Because here, uh, Paul describes how it is that Jesus provides us with a salvation that much more than overwhelms the catastrophe of Adam's sin. In other words, whatever we lost in Adam, we have more than gained in Christ. He says in verse 14 that Adam is a type of Jesus, but he's only a type uh, in terms of contrast, an absolute stark contrast. In verse 16, he tells us that Adam brought judgment and condemnation into human history, brought it into the human condition. But Jesus brought justification, that Jesus came into the world and provided in his death and his burial and his resurrection a forgiveness of sins that is so great that when we receive that forgiveness of sins, our sins are so thoroughly washed away that is just, it is just as if they had never existed or we had never committed them. You notice in verses 17, and then he, he repeats it in verse 21, that Adam, as he brought death into human history and the human condition, but Jesus has provided mankind with everlasting life. And that when we trust in Jesus for salvation, we immediately receive everlasting life. Everlasting life isn't something that I'm going to one day experience as a Christian or that I will one day possess as a Christian. It is something that we possess right now. Uh, it, 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 is the, it is the possession of every single Christian. Famously, Jesus declared, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have, present tense, everlasting life. Jesus spoke to uh, Martha in uh, John chapter 11 in the context of Lazarus' death, and he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives, that's you and me in this room right now, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You notice in verse 19 as well that through Adam, Every human being has inherited, as we've seen, a sin nature. Uh, every single one of us in this room has. But Jesus has, in contrast now to Adam, provided mankind with a righteousness that's born out of a new nature that now provi provides me with a love for God and a desire to obey Him that is even greater then my love for sin and my desire to obey it. And that took some doing, but God has provided it to us in his son. 
Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. Paul wrote in this regard in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read it to you. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man. This is who Jesus has provided to us. The new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and in holiness. God has brought by his Holy Spirit a new nature within us as Christians that allows us to come break free of the orbit of, of, the, uh, of sin and the love of sin and the addiction to sin that we receive from Adam and Eve. And then he tells us uh, one of the most famous verses in Romans there in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 20. He closes that verse by saying, but where sin abounded. Now, as he contrasts Adam and Jesus, but where sin abounded, that's the Adam bomb, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace hyperabounded. And I say hallelujah to it. In other words, all of these graces provided to us in Jesus, all of the things that we can have and be because of him, all of these things hyperabound all that Adam introduced into human history and introduced into our lives individually. And that is saying a lot. Jesus is God's solution to the Adam bomb. He is a, not only a perfect match to our need, but he overwhelms every need that we have as a descendant of Adam and Eve. And the idea of abounded much more in the passage there uh, in the Greek, it carries the idea of exceedingly. And it's a word picture that's intended to be produced within our mind. And here, the, uh, the picture that it's intended to produce is to take... It's as if all of the consequences of Adam's fall, and we've looked at them. I mean, they're devastating. Uh, no human being accepts them. It's brought such, uh, escapes them. It's brought such carnage and heartbreak into human history, uh, for, uh, all directions. And yet, uh, you take all of the consequences of Adam's fall, and you can represent it as a sandcastle on on a, on a seashore, and then imagine, uh, in contrast to that, a great tidal wave coming in from the sea that then takes out the sandcastle, the beach, takes out the city associated with the beach, and takes out the landmass 10 miles inland. And this is what Jesus has done to the consequences of the sin of Adam for us when we put our trust in him. He has overwhelmed them beyond what you can ever put into words. Uh, I, I, I've uh, wasted some time on, on YouTube uh, through the years. If you've ever been on YouTube, you look for some particular thing, and then they'll, they'll feed you videos in that vein. Uh, that you can sit there for eight hours and watch them. 
Uh, and uh, so I put in one on like a tsunami or, or some kind of a tidal wave or something, and then uh, and you see these gigantic waves coming in, and people are out there frolicking, you know, and it's like, oh, you better run to a 10-story building for what's coming in and uh, boats being tossed around and so forth. But, I mean, you, you look at it, and, and, uh, uh, but the, the tidal wave coming in, and imagine the, a, a, a small sandcastle on that shore, and how much more is God's grace greater than all that Adam uh, brought into human history, how much greater what Christ has done, and how much greater is God's grace than uh, certainly than our individual sins. I'll close with this. I remember reading something in William McDonald's daily devotional. It's called One Day at a Time. It's one of my three favorite devotionals in, in all of the world. I highly recommend it. But I, I re- uh, read uh, years ago something that encapsulated all that Paul is saying here in, in Romans, this section of Romans chapter 5 so perfectly. So allow me to, to read it to you. It's more than a sentence or two, and it, but I think it's worth concentrating and, and absorbing. He wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul contrasts the two federal heads of the human race, Adam and Christ. Adam was the head of the first creation. Christ is the head of the new creation. The first was natural and the second is spiritual. Three times Paul uses the words much more to emphasize that the blessings flowing from Christ's work hyperabounded over the losses incurred by Adam's sin. He is saying that in Christ the sons of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Believers are better off in Christ than they ever would have been in unfallen Adam. Let us suppose for a moment that Adam hadn't sinned, that instead of eating of the forbidden fruit, he and his wife decided to obey God. What would have been the result of their lives? As far as we know, they would have continued to live indefinitely in the Garden of Eden. Their reward would have been long life on earth, and this would have been true of their offspring. As long as they too continued without sinning, they would have lived indefinitely in Eden. Uh, They would not have died. But that state of innocence, uh, in that state of innocence, they would have no prospect of ever going to heaven. There would be no promise of being indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. They would never become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. They would have, uh, never have the hope of being conformed into the image of God's Son. And there would always be the terrible possibility that they might sin and forbid, forfeit the earthly blessings they enjoyed in Eden. Think by contrast of the infinitely superior position which Christ has won for us by His atoning work. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. 
We are accepted in the beloved, complete in Christ, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, justified, sanctified, glorified, made members of the body of Christ. We are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit, and He is the earnest of our inheritance. We are eternally secure in Christ. We are children of God and sons of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are as near to God and as dear to God as His own beloved Son. And there is much, much more. But that is enough to show that believers are better off today in the Lord Jesus Christ than they would have ever been in an innocent Adam. I don't want one single one of us, anyone from Calvary Chapel Modesto, to end up in heaven one day and finding Adam and having any kind of a beef with him or punching him in the nose. All it would do is reflect the fact that we were poorly taught related to Adam. Nowhere sin abounded, grace abounds much more. And the portion that is now ours in Christ is a portion that we would have never otherwise known. Uh, Even if Adam and Eve had never fallen, it is not to minimize that fall, but to accentuate and to uh, give praise to the greatness of God's grace. No human being can control whether we are in Adam or not. Every single one of us in this room, we are born in Adam in our physical birth. But what we do have control over is whether we continue to stay in Adam as our supreme identity uh, in life, or whether we will experience a second birth, a spiritual birth, by putting our faith in Jesus as our Savior and now being in Christ. And sometimes people will complain about Adam and why in the world am I held responsible for his fall and so forth. But the fact of the matter is every single one of us are sinners by nature and by practice. I don't have any confidence that I would have done any better in the Garden of Eden than he did, and I have less confidence that you would have. So how do, what do you think about that poke in the eye? That's just how I see the the scene. This is why no one can ever hold Adam responsible for the life that we live in this life or where we end up in eternity, because no one needs to stay under the curse of Adam, under the effects of the Adam bomb. Salvation from all of that, and more than that, is available in Christ. Adam messed up. But the fact of the matter is that he has uh, afforded us, as any parent does, life. And he has afforded us breath and physical life and emotional life and intellectual life. All of these are blessings in and of themselves. But beyond that, he has provided us with an opportunity to put our faith in Jesus and to experience a life we would have never known otherwise a life that is even far greater than the perfection of the one that we would have known in the Garden of Eden, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What grace God has toward each of us and what He has provided to us in His Son. 
If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you were created for and, and that, that is available to you to receive as a free gift from God in an instant in time. I would, I would ask and challenge any human being in the world uh, to take and look at the assessments of mankind, the world, the condition of man, the condition of the world, and so forth, and all of the theories and philosophies of man and so forth, and see if there is any description of the world and why it is the way that it is and mankind and why we are the way that we are that excels the description and the revelation that is given us through God's Word, but not merely to give us revelation, to then realize, wow, who could know us like that but God? Who could know us like that except our Creator? But not to stop there, but then to do what every person needs to do, and that is in a moment in time to put our trust in the Savior that He has sent into the world so that Jesus' victory over the atom bomb and all of the consequences of it will not only be a part of human history, but it will now become something that becomes a part of your life and your eternity as well. These men and women would love to pray with you and for you uh, as well. Let's stand together now, and we'll give uh, the Lord uh, thanks for um, this time and this word. Isn't it something, I mean, for all, all of us here as Christians to just, I mean, as we study the Word of God, study, you know, the, the density of what Paul lays out in the book of Romans, and it just takes us into a deeper understanding of our salvation, a deeper appreciation of it um, that just makes us love Him all the more and marvel at His wisdom and at His grace in saving us as He has done and uh, at such enormous expense to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in doing so. Father, we thank You so much for time in this Word. We thank You for Your revelation. Mankind would be, and we would individually, be absolutely blind without uh, revelation. We would just be uh, like a, 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 on a pong machine or a pinball machine, a ball just going uh, mindlessly in all directions and trying to survive from one day to another without any understanding of the grand scheme of all that goes on around us and never knowing the peace that comes with understanding and then the greater peace that comes with trusting in your Son. As your children this morning, we bless you. We see it. We see the atom bomb. We see the devastation. We don't just see it. We've experienced it in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own fallenness. And from 4300 American Avenue in Modesto, California, this little place on planet Earth, we bless you, Father, for how you have overwhelmed all of the devastation of that bomb with your Son. And we bless you and thank you for finding a way and making a way for us to know you through him and to make him our Savior. We bless you for the quality of life that is ours even now to say nothing of what we will one day experience in heaven. We praise you and we bless you this morning 
for your goodness. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.